Hi, welcome to History Respond. I'm your host, Bob Whitaker. Today's episode considers Assassin's Creed Valhalla, the latest title in Ubisoft's long-running historical action-adventure series. Players in Valhalla take on the role of Eivor, a Viking raider participating in the construction of a new Viking settlement in 9th century England. Eivor's journey takes them from Norway to the kingdoms of medieval England, as well as the cities of Winchester, York, and London. To help me better understand the history behind this game, I've invited on Dr. Daniel Maleno. Dr. Maleno is Assistant Professor of Medieval History at the University of Denver, and he specializes in the history of early medieval Europe. His research focuses on cross-cultural relationships in the pre-modern world, with a particular interest in the Vikings and their impact on Europe. Daniel, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. So Daniel, uh, you are one of the rare guests on History Respond who is not only a expert on the subject matter, but has also played a little bit of this game. So could you give me a sense right off the bat about how far you are into Assassin's Creed Valhalla? Yeah, sure. So um, right now I have been raiding monasteries and putting off heading out of Ravensthorpe to go uh, meet the next sort of level of the quest, which is, I think, um, Sigurd meeting with various kings and making alliances. So I'm in England, and I've been doing the thing that I try to stop myself from doing, which is wandering and finding <laughs> all the little side quests and not progressing plot. Well, I, I think that, you know, the developers probably assume that's what you would do. Uh, and I think that's what most players do. Um and, you know, I've seen a lot of discussion online so far about people kind of avoiding uh, the main storyline in order just to explore. Um, but I was wondering, you know, given the setting of this game, it's set in 873 CE, and it's amidst this Viking expansion into England. And we get kind of a an opening snippet of the game that's set in Norway. And we get some sense that, you know, they're leaving Norway because of warfare, because of overcrowding, because of competition for resources. But I'm wondering if you could tell us, our listeners as well, you know, what is going on? What's drawing the Vikings to England at this time? Yeah, so actually I think the the snippet in Norway is really interesting because there are a lot of, you know, I would say questionable is maybe too strong a word given that it is a game, but the history and the and the game stuff, you know, play fast and loose, but the actual plot wherein uh, Harold Fairhair is consolidating power and that causes basically an exodus of various rival um, Viking leaders or Norse leaders is, is really sort of based on our historical sources. And so that was really cool to see them using something that is in the sagas. Um, when we think about like why Vikings are going to places and why England in particular um, we can often think about sort of a push and a pull mm-hmm. element of it. Um, and so obviously political centralization and consolidation in Scandinavia uh, is a big push, right? Um, you have these kings. It's not just Harold Fairhair who is mildly mythological. You know, we're, we're not entirely sure how real he is. He's certainly more real than like an Arthur figure, mm-hmm. but he's not super well attested in primary stuff. Um, but whether you're in Norway or in Denmark or Sweden, we're seeing the same sort of thing, which is people taking power, consolidating, and other people, the losers of these battles, sort of 
getting pushed out of Scandinavia. Right. Um, so that's the push. When we think about the pull, um, part of, we actually see this right off the bat in the beginning of the game when you're playing with the little, when you're, you know, sort of walking along with baby, well, little child, Ivor, and there's the whole ring giving scene. Yes. And that's definitely a big part of it, right? Um, Viking culture and Germanic culture more broadly is a gift giving culture. So the whole process is basically um, you go out and you take stuff from other people and then you distribute it to your loyal men um, and that earns you their loyalty. But then, of course, in order to, you know, do more of that, you have to go out and conquer more people and take more stuff. And that attracts more people, which means you need more stuff, right? It's the cyclical sort of vicious cycle. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's not a, what we would call a sort of a stable economic system. <laughs> um, but so clearly the need to acquire, I mean, if we want to use the most basic term capital in order to distribute it to your warriors and establish reputation is really important. Um, and so one big reason people are going to England um, and to the wider you know, Viking world, as we call it, is to acquire those goods. Um, that's especially important if you're a, you know, not to put too fine a point on it, a loser in the sort of battles for power in Scandinavia, right? Like you have to find somewhere else to make your fortune. Um, and it just so happens that England at this time is a pretty good place to do it. Um, it's When we think about the Viking world, it's almost useful to think of it in terms of like theaters of mm -hmm. war. Um, so you have like the continent, which is the Frankish empire. Um, so France and Germany and Italy and that sort of stuff. Uh, you have the, the British Isles writ large. So Ireland, Scotland, um, and then you have England proper, right? And each of these sort of theaters has different groups of Vikings sort of moving around in it. Um, and what happens in one theater impacts another. So what we can see is that there's not a whole lot of raiding in England. There's sporadic raiding in the early half of the ninth century, but by the second half of the ninth century, it really picks up such that by 873, there's these giant armies sort of marching around. And there's a couple of probable reasons for that. One is that it has gotten too crowded in Ireland. So there's no longer the sort of easy pickings in Ireland. There's too many Vikings. So, Instead of going to Ireland, maybe you go to England, where there's not as many Vikings. Mm. Uh, the continent, which has been a favorite place for Vikings since the 830s, 840s, has gotten pretty good by the 860s, 870s at fending off Vikings. Um, so again, we get the sense that like what was rich pickings uh, in France has ceased to be easy. And so they turn their attention to England. England at this point is split into numerous kingdoms. The game sort of posits four, which is sort of fair. We, we sometimes talk about the Heptarchy uh, or the seven kingdoms, but they sort of come and go and, and expand and contract and absorb each other. Um, but at this point, England is essentially a, a number of kingdoms, which are in no way, shape or form unified, mm -hmm. right? We can't really speak of England, England as, a, yeah. as a state or a kingdom. You've got Wessex in the south, the West Saxons. You've got Mercia sort of in the middle, Northumbria, East Anglia on the coast, um, right? And so from a political sort of and strategic perspective, it makes sense to show up in England because there's not a central power to stop you, mm -hmm. right? 
again, if things get too hot in Wessex, you go back up north to Northumbria. If things are too hot in Northumbria, maybe you bop down to, to Mercia in the middle. Um, and of course, the fun part of it is that all of these different Anglo-Saxon kings are encouraging that sort of behavior too. Mm. So Vikings show up at your doorstep, you could fight them, and sometimes you do, um, or you could pay them off and say maybe like, here's, you know, basically protection money, maybe go somewhere else. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and there's lots of other places for them to go. And and we can see like these kings basically trying to sort of like take advantage of this Norse um, expansion and invasion and push it to places that is more strategically valuable for them. Not always super successful. Yeah. It's interesting to me. I've got a PhD in British history, modern British history. So it's interesting to hear of England being put in a reverse position where they are the ones who are trying to pay off the invader uh, to to avoid yes. conquering them. <laughs> and, right. you know, one of the things that's interesting to me, and I was wondering if you could speak on this a little bit, um, is that, you know, in the beginning of the game in Norway, you get some sort of sense uh, from Sigurd, uh, the kind of head of your clan, that he's been in these kind of wider areas of the European world. Uh, you know, he makes some reference uh, to traveling uh, to the Middle East, for instance. Uh, he makes some reference to traveling uh, along the Volga River. Uh, and so yeah. I'm wondering, you know, how how common was that? Was a Sigurd a, a character, was that a, a thing that would happen with the Vikings during this age? Would they go all around? Or was it kind of you were locked into one theater and that's where you stayed? Sigurd is very well-traveled, I'll say, um, especially given, he says, I think he's been away for two winters. Yes. Um, so I guess two years, I'm not sure where they get that like winters thing, but so he's been away for two years and apparently has gone down the Volga, um, what we sometimes call the Osterweg, the East, the East road. Um, he's been to Constantinople. I think he says that's where he meets yes. the, um, not assassins. Yes. <laughs> um, Right. So he's been to Constantinople. He's he's been to the Middle East. He says he's been to, to the Mediterranean, right, Greece and Africa. Um, and those are all places that Vikings went. But then he also, when they get to England, references having been in England. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of like, did he do a full loop? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> a little hard to, to, to imagine in two years. That being said, the most one of the most famous sort of um, Viking guys out there is a guy named Harold Hadrada, Harold Hardruler, who's actually the loser, one of the losers of the whole Conquer England in 1066 project. Um, he's this Norwegian king who loses to Harold Godwinson before uh, William the Conqueror arrives. Right. Um, and his story is basically he was the sort of um, younger half-brother of the Norwegian king. Um, the Danes invaded and he got exiled. He spends basically most of his sort of teenage, young adult life in Greece, serving the Byzantines, um, and then comes back to Norway, lives in Norway as a king, and then invades England, right? So clearly there is room, especially for powerful um, leaders, to be around mm -hmm. right there's lots of connectivity more frequently though we would think about different groups going to different areas mm -hmm. um it's not quite as cut and dry sometimes we talk about like um the Austerveg, the east is where the swedes go um the the north atlantic is where the norwegians go and england is where the norwegians go and the continent is where the danes go and that's a little too schematic but we could sort of think of it 
you're less likely to see somebody going to both the Eastern roads and to Ireland, just because that's a lot. Yeah. Um, but they're all connected to each other. Sure. Right. So there is a lot of movement and somebody who's in Ireland one season might be in France. Another season might be uh, in Sweden. Another season might be in the Baltic, for instance. Yeah. Well, that's interesting, too, I think, because I think, you know, speaking as a modern historian, there's this view of this time period as the Dark Ages. And so there isn't a lot of interconnectivity. There isn't a lot of movement in between places because of a lack of, you know, the Roman Empire or this kind of great Christian kingdoms of the early modern period. And yet this kind of pushes against that notion and that that, uh, idea that this is kind of an era where not much is going on. Yeah, we we talk about, you know, the Viking world. There's about a billion and a half very creatively named books that are all a variation on the Viking world. (laughs) My class is called the Viking world. Um, And there's a big push in medieval history right now to to sort of try and do more global history. And the Vikings are a really good entry point into it. Yeah. When I show slides to my students. Right. You can show them a slide from North America. We have a documented site at Lonzo Meadows in Newfoundland, right, where there there were technically not Vikings, right? We talk about the Norse people as a more correct term, but there were Norse people in North America, in Canada. Um, There were Norse people in Constantinople during the same time. There's this great uh, section. There's a balustrade in the Hagia Sophia where there's a bunch of runes carved on that were probably carved by like a super bored Norseman who is just like standing in <laughs> church who doesn't understand Greek or whatever. Graffiti, right? right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, essentially graffiti, right? We have um, Viking activity in Italy. We have rune stones that reference Vikings going to uh, Cirkland, which means the Saracen land, mm. uh, probably as far east as like the Caspian or the Black, you know, like um, we, and then even beyond just like who's going to these places, we have stuff coming in from everywhere, mm-hmm. right? Like we have piles and piles of coins from the Abbasid Empire, the, the Islamic world in Sweden. We have, um, there's a great little, there's something called the Helga Buddha, which is this little Buddha statue <laughs> in Sweden, right? Oh, wow. um, and again, the likelihood that like a Norse person went to, um, you know, Southeast Asia and picked up the statue are pretty slim, right? It's probably being handed off via different sort of intermediaries, but still like this is a world where you can be, you know, you could be a Viking in Ireland who has relatives in, uh, in Iceland and relatives in Sweden and relatives in modern day Ukraine and relatives in, you know, wherever right yeah. like it's all connected yeah um it's it's huge and it's it is connected right that's the beauty mm-hmm. of it yeah um so you spend most of your time in this game participating in raids on both saxon settlements and then also monasteries that are strewn around these kingdoms of eastern england and i'm wondering how common were these types of raids in this era and also were they as bloody as the game makes them out to be it's an interesting sort of almost um, contradictory element, the bloodiness of it. Um, because one thing I noticed, I actually noticed this last night and it made me laugh out loud, which is you're in a monastery and you're raiding and you hit a monk and the game flashes up a big warning that says like <laughs> hitting civilians will cause you to desynchronize, which yes. is basically the cute way of saying like you lose. 
um, which is hilarious. The idea that you that you're running around with your axe and you're not allowed to like hit a monk with it. Um, but there's an endless supply of armed guards at every monastery, <laughs> which is completely against the whole point of raiding, mm -hmm. right? Like the point of going raiding, and we have all these images of like the Vikings as these like bloodthirsty marauders. And that's because our sources want us to believe that. Um, all of our sources, this is the, the true sort of irony and difficulty and challenge and beauty of Viking Age history is that they are a pre-literate people um, during this period. Right? They do not have writing. They are some rune stones, but even that's fairly late in the Viking Age. So they don't write. Mm -hmm. So all of our historical sources um, are either from non-Norse people, non-Vikings, right? So Christian monks in England, Christian monks in, uh, in France, um, Muslim observers who are sort of coming from the Abbasid Empire, right? Like all of our contemporary sources, written sources, are not by Vikings. Mm -hmm. uh, or they are written by Norse people hundreds of years after the events. That's our sagas and all of our Norse mythology is all written down mostly by Icelanders in like the 13th century, um, right? So it's looking back. I, in class, I sometimes start off by playing a chunk of Hamilton to my students Right, and then ask them to like describe what the Battle of Yorktown would have been like based <laughs> on this song, because that's essentially what we're doing. Is yeah. Like oh, that's a great idea. To, to this to, to this performative, like not a fairy tale, right? Like oral memory making, basically, of what happened centuries ago. Um, but all of our sources paint this picture of like Vikings, um, and in reality, the Vikings almost certainly weren't any bloodier or more violent than any other group, right? Mm -hmm. um, there's this great statement by a historian uh, named Timothy Reuter, who said that, like, to the Saxons, the Carolingians were the Vikings, right? Like, um, basically, everybody is raiding. That's how you make money. That's how you sort of project power. And that's how you get the gifts you need to submit, build support. Mm -hmm. um, but the Vikings are raiding places that... It's not that they never get attacked. Monasteries get raided, but they're doing it at a frequency and in a way that is unexpected or feels abnormal to our source writers. So it makes sense that our documents paint them as, you know, very scary and bloodthirsty. Um, these are documents of trauma, essentially. Sure. Um, on the flip side, it makes sense that Vikings would attack monasteries, right? The game has, again, this endless supply of armed guards, like running around with giant hammers and, <laughs> and they all have shields and there's like a never ending supply of them until you finish, you know, hitting each of the key strategic points. Uh, that's, again, not how monasteries work. Um, they're supposed to be separate from the world. They're supposed to be, you know, um, a bunch of monks sort of just living there, which makes them really easy takings, right? Yeah. If you're a Viking and you have to choose between attacking a military camp filled with armed guards or a place that has a lot of people who don't have weapons and also a lot of movable wealth, <laughs> you know, yeah. which are you going to do? It's, it's what they call in the sociology, a crime of opportunity, right? Uh, right. So you wouldn't try to hit the place that's got the best guards and the best defenses. Exactly. And it just so happens that especially in the early period, not so much by 873, but in the early period, Monasteries are frequently built on little islands off the coasts, right? Like um, 
So Lindisfarne is like the most famous example of a, of a raid. It's 793. Everybody says like the first Viking raid, even though there's technically one or two before that. Um, and Lindisfarne is a monastery. You can still go visit it today. It's not functional anymore, but it's, you know, built off the coast. And when the tide is low, you can walk across. And when the tide is high, it's separated, mm-hmm. uh, which makes it a really good place to sort of be separate from the world, right? It's kind of like uh, Mont Saint-Michel in, in France. Sure, yeah. Um, but it also means that, like, if you're a Viking on a ship that can go anywhere, that's a super convenient place to <laughs> raid, right? Um, so all of our early raiding is basically on these sorts of sites. By the 870s, monasteries are lot a lot less sort of the, the site of raiding. Um, and also by the 870s in England, we're looking at much larger activity. Right. Like the way the game sort of posits posits it is that like you go out on these raids and you just sort of hit strategic spots and you grab stuff and come home. Um, And there's probably some of that. But the most obvious stuff that the sources talk about is like big movements of groups hitting sites and taking stuff. Right. Not so much like one ship sort of bopping into a monastery, grabbing some stuff and leaving anymore. Um, So they are bloody. Um. Although the, the other big thing that's missing from this game, uh, with I think one real sort of exception, at the very beginning of the sort of storyline, after you've left Little Kid, uh, you're almost sold into slavery. Yes. And I thought, oh, this is really interesting. Slavery is this big part of uh, the Viking world that usually gets left out. This is going to be fascinating. Uh, and then they don't really touch on it anymore. But mm-hmm. like, the big thing you do at a monastery, you wouldn't kill all the monks. You would sell them back basically you would ransom them Mm. ideally that's what you're doing occasionally maybe you're carrying them off to slavery and selling them further afield um but for the most part right like the fact that you can't either kill monks or enslave monks and ransom them back is a really sort of big divergence um and instead what you're doing is running around grabbing stuff hitting some guards and leaving yeah um so Raiding is a very fundamental, I mean, it's the, the root of the word Viking, right? Means pirate or raider. Um, so it is a fundamental part of Viking activity. The picture that we get is somewhat mediated, I think, by sort of both gameplay needs and by sort of standards of a sort. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, they don't want you to kill monks. <laughs> They're not going to let you sell anybody into slavery. Um I think also they don't want you to be a bad person, right? It's a lot easier yeah. for your protagonist to hit armed guards yeah. than it is for them to like carry a bunch of women and children off. Yeah, unarmed slavery. or nonviolent people. So, yeah. so let me ask you briefly about this issue of slavery. How did this slavery work in the Viking Age? Was it the fact that they would take them into bondage and then sell them elsewhere, or was it more focused on the ransom aspect that you talked about? What? How did how did that work? The sense that we get is that the ransom aspect in most cases is bigger than the enslaving aspect, especially in places like England and um, the continent. Mm-hmm. In Ireland, there is very clearly a thriving slave trade. Uh, we have rel- we have like objects. We have uh, shackles, for instance, from Ireland. And in fact, the shackles that they stick on your character at the very beginning, I saw them and I was like, oh, those are those shackles from Ireland. There's all kinds of fun little like museum pieces scattered throughout the game. Um, so 
we know, for instance, we have lots of stories about enslaved Irish peoples in the sagas um, and in the Icelandic histories. And in fact, um, even today, if you do, you know, genetic sampling, if you do sort of heritage studies of Iceland, a not insubstantial proportion, I forget the exact numbers, but, you know, less than 50, more than 10% of people have Irish DNA mm-hmm. because they are descended from either slaves or former slaves. Um, in the sagas, we hear about, um, you know, slaves being freed when their owners get to Iceland and basically they turn into what we call freemen uh, who are free, but sort of under sort of social obligation to the people who freed them. Mm. Um and so there is a very active slave trade. The biggest slave trade is happening in the Baltic. Um, and that is moving Slavs, which is actually where the word slave derives from, mm-hmm. um, down through the Eastern paths into the Islamic world, which is the sort of big um, place where slaves are sold. Um, and so they're either moving them through the Eastern way or they're selling them to the Frankish world, which sells them down through Italy into the Mediterranean. Gotcha. Um, so that's the slave trade. There's also a very active slave holding aspect, right? These thralls that the game constantly refers to. Although again, you don't see a whole lot of thralls running around in Ravensthorpe. No. Uh, <laughs> doing all the hard work. Um, but slave holding is a fundamental part of the Viking system. Got it. So I wanted to wrap back around to the issue of religion uh, with yeah. relation to the monasteries. And, you know, of course, given the fact that you're a part of these Viking rings going into these monasteries, um, it seems to be an important part of at least the game's depiction that there's this religious conflict going on between the Saxons and the Vikings. Uh, there's a lot of instances in which the player character Ivor mocks the Christian God while she's, you know, killing guards and whatnot at monasteries. And then conversely, you have the Saxons often referring to the Vikings as pagan savages. So I'm wondering how important were these religious differences at the time? Were they an inspiration for fighting or were they just kind of an added excuse for what was really about, you know, kind of a money grab? Yeah. From the perspective of our Christian sources, it's a huge deal. Um, but again, it's worth noting that all our Christian sources are written by monks, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> so it's not, you know, it's not completely, it's it's understandable why they would think that Christianity is super important. Yeah. Their perspective really is that like the pagans, and they use the word pagan all over the place, right? Like it's very consistent to refer to the Vikings as pagans um, in a derogatory sense. Mm-hmm. Their perspective is that this is an attack on Christian sites. And that's understandable, right? Like they are attacking Christian sites. Um, Christianity is an exclusive religion which thinks of itself very much in opposition to other religions, right? Um, Mm. And as the heir to a sort of ongoing battle over persecution and attack, um, I talked about Lindisfarne before. When Lindisfarne is sacked in 793, we know it's so famous in part because a guy named Alcuin wrote a whole bunch of letters about it. And Alcuin was like the intellectual of the late eighth, early ninth century. Uh, He's a a Northumbrian monk. So he's an English monk who serves in Charlemagne's court on the continent um, and later becomes the Bishop of Tours, which is a pretty big deal in England, in France. Um, And he writes tons of letters and he writes tons of letters about Lindisfarne 
And the way that he writes about the attack on Lindisfarne, his, his basic analysis is like, we got attacked because God is mad at us. Mm. We have been doing things wrong. He spends a lot of time worrying about um, the monks maybe are dressing too fancily or maybe they're drinking too much, right? <laughs> they're not doing good Christian stuff. And so now God is punishing them slash testing them. And he makes very explicit allusions to like, we are like Jerusalem when it got sacked by a billion different people. Right. Right. Uh, we are like Babylon. And yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. Um, that's us now. The Vikings are our plague. And he really does like he depicts the Vikings as basically like a scourge from God. So they're basically agency list sort of locusts. Right. He doesn't think about them as people. He's not interested in like. Well, the socioeconomics of <laughs> Scandinavian society drive them to, you know, like, he doesn't care about that. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, so from the Christian perspective, it is a religious problem, right? Um, from the Viking perspective, almost certainly not nearly as much. Um, that doesn't mean that they wouldn't have thought that this Christian God was weird. Um, you know, like the second you get to England, I think the, the like, not quite buddy character dag mm-hmm. is like mocking the cross and you could sort of get a sense like that might make sense like christianity has its own sort of stuff going on that doesn't super make sense to a polytheistic um ritual based you know non-dogmatic religious group right like yeah. norse paganism what we know about it which is very little uh doesn't have exclusivity it doesn't have a book doesn't require you know certain like credos to exist right um but you know sometimes there's talk about like the viking attacks are a direct result or reprisal against um because of the invasion of saxony mm-hmm. and the destruction of like there's the destruction of a place called Ermensol, which is a big saxon religious site and there's no evidence for that um there's no reason to think that the vikings would care particularly about christianity in any sort of adversarial way Mm -hmm. right norse paganism is not a converting religion it doesn't attempt to make you norse pagan um if anything what we see is a lot of viking people becoming christian over time right like one of the grand ironies i've had endless numbers of thesis students who come to me and the big question they want to work on is like how come everybody's not a viking (laughs) Right. Like, why is it that at the end of the Viking age, Scandinavia is European, right? It has kings, it has Christianity, it has writing, it has stone buildings. Instead of the other way around, given that the Scandinavians are the aggressors. And part of that is that, like, again, Norse paganism is flexible and Norse peoples seem to be super willing to adapt and make use of whatever seems useful or interesting. Um. So they're not attacking monasteries because they're Christian, right? They're attacking monasteries because that's a good place to get money. (laughs) Um, Occasionally, there almost certainly would have been religious strife, Um, especially once conversion starts getting rolling in Scandinavia. We do see anti-Christian sentiment Mm. from elites. Got it. Right. Uh, Who don't want to convert, who are unhappy about, x y or z process right um but in terms of like the invasion element um vikings are really like the great heathen army the large numbers of them convert for sure 
my favorite story is uh, Guthrum, who is a character you can meet. He's the leader of the Great Summer Army. His He becomes Guthrum Aethelstan. After he loses a battle to Alfred the Great, he converts. He gets given East Anglia in exchange for becoming baptized as Aethelstan. Hmm. Um, whether he truly believes in this Christianity stuff or whether it's like, okay, that's a convenient way to maintain control and power and get wealth. We can't say, right. We can't ask him. Right. But clearly it wasn't a big enough, no deal sort of deal breaker for him. To, and this, we see it again and again, Vikings are super willing to be baptized. Whether it sticks or not is another question. <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting to me. What I'm what I'm learning so far, at least by your talk of our sources, is it sounds like the Vikings needed a better PR person uh, when it came <laughs> to to these sources. But I guess that's that's what comes with the territory, with uh, the way that historians look at this material, and you know the fact that we're so reliant in so many cases on uh, you know written sources, and so that puts the Vikings at a a big disadvantage, at least in terms of historical memory. Yeah. But it's interesting, right? Because they're at a disadvantage, sort of, except that nobody's making games about, you know, the Franks. I mean, they <laughs> sort of are. Like, uh, I think Total War, Medieval Total War yeah. II had a had a Charlemagne expansion. Yeah, or Age of Empires uh, back, you know, 20 years ago yeah. or so. Right. You could play as Charlemagne in, in Crusader Kings, I think. But for the most part, if you ask somebody like, who's your favorite Carolingian king? Charlemagne is the only one they'll know. Um, it's a bit of a trick question. They're all named Charles or Louis. Um, but um, but still, right? Like on the one hand, Vikings have this like real bad PR, but on the other hand, nobody's making movies about, you know, it's not how to train your dragons, look at all the Saxons. It's how to train your dragons, look at all these Vikings. Vikings right? yeah. like, there's no TV show called Saxons, right? Yeah. Um, there's... You know, there's no, uh, you know, Assassin's Creed, uh, Carolingia, well, or whatever. Right? We'll wait and like, see. Who knows? Uh, it might be. Uh, they, they were, I think they're running out of historical material. Um, yeah, we'll there's see. so much they can do. <laughs> Everybody still wants the, the the Japan game, right? They do. Like, they do. Yeah. Um, well, Ghosts of. Uh, I'm going to get the name. Ghosts right, of Tsushima. So yeah. Yes. Uh, right. Like, may have blown that out of the water, but like, everybody wants that. Yeah, you know, there's no, there hasn't been a Mongol game yet. There's, there's room. Okay. Well, speaking <laughs> um, of an, another potential Assassin's Creed setting, uh, let's talk a little bit about Rome. Um, so, this game it depicts England uh, and the countryside as one that is kind of filled, almost to a preposterous extent, with Roman ruins. Uh, you've got huge towers and statues just dotting the landscape, and I'm wondering to what extent were Roman ruins, Roman artifacts still in circulation or still existent at this time? Yeah. So this is about, we're in 873. So it's a little under 400 years since Rome basically split. Um, and we do get a sense that there were Roman I mean, like there are documented Roman ruins that you can go see still, sure. obviously. Um, and there, there are interesting little hallmarks. Um, I was part of a, a AMA on uh, our Ask Historians this weekend uh, about the game. Um, and, and somebody asked this very same question. And so there's some good posts on it there too. Um, but like you spend a lot of time in London um, in the game or you can. And it's very clearly like Roman London. Mm -hmm. um, Roman London is abandoned at this time and actually gets sort of like 
occupied by Vikings at one point um, because it's abandoned. Um, and the actual site of London is not in the Roman ruins in this period. Mm. It gets sort of reoccupied by Christians after the Vikings, sort of because they're like, oh, maybe we don't leave this really good defensible spot for Vikings. <laughs> um, so there are Roman ruins. There's a really famous Anglo-Saxon poetry called The Ruin, um, which every person who teaches early medieval history just loves. Um, and it's ba- it's about Bath, um, the, the city of Bath, mm-hmm. which is in um, sort of Easternish uh, England. Uh, and you can still go see the Roman ruins there. The baths are still like a great tourist site. Um, and I think you can go visit uh, the house of, um, oh, I'm blanking on her name now. I shouldn't have started an anecdote. I can't finish. <laughs> um, Mr. Darcy. Uh, oh. <laughs> oh, well. Jane, uh, Jane Austen. Jane Austen. Jane Austen. Yes, yeah, there. we got there. Uh, oh boy. Um, so the poem is basically written from the perspective of an Anglo-Saxon, um, probably in like the 10th century. Um, the I think the extant manuscript is later, but it's hard to know. And it's basically this poem about like, look at these giant buildings. They've all fallen down. You know, these were built by giants and they probably don't think literally that, but like by these people who did these things that we can't even imagine doing, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And where are they now? It's a very typical Anglo-Saxon sort of, there's a a phrase for it called ubisunt, which is Latin for where is it or where are they? Um, It's this idea like, where did it all go, right? And so the poem captures the sense of like, what happened to this amazing group of people who could build this amazing stuff and now it's all in ruins, right? So clearly that's a thing what's not a thing is like giant temples out in the middle of nowhere. Uh, right. Like, again, like why would you build a giant temple out in the middle of nowhere? That's not how temples work. Um, but obviously they need places you can climb. Yeah. Uh, and that's okay, I guess. Um, but yeah, they do take it to sort of a ludicrous degree um, at times. Right. Like Rome would have been a thing for sure, but um but it's not like it's just sort of sitting there. A lot of those buildings would have been picked over for um, what's sometimes called spoilia for the reuse of stones. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, like, I think the thing that really struck me is like, you're wandering around the countryside and then bam, there's a temple. And you're like, oh, is that an asset they just borrowed from Assassin's Creed Odyssey? Um, copy it looks copy like, and paste. Yeah. Yeah. It's just like, <laughs> oh, that's a classical temple in the middle of England, huh? Um, probably not. Yeah. Uh, you know, especially well, not in the middle of nowhere. Romans were urbanizers. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so a lot of the ruins are going to be found in urban sp- spots, yeah. not out in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. Um, so Ubisoft uh, reported this week uh, that Assassin's Creed Valhalla has broken its initial sales figures uh, for the entire series. So uh, at least initially, this is the most popular game in the series so far. And I think a lot of the sales of this game are undoubtedly the result of the game's subject matter. And I'm wondering, what do you think it is about the Vikings, the Viking age that makes them such a popular topic for historical fiction? And what do you think in what you've played so far, what do you think of Ubisoft's approach to this topic? Yeah. I mean, we sort of touched on it a little, right? Like people love Vikings. Mm-hmm. Um, for which I'm eternally grateful. It's why I have a job, right? <laughs> um, 
you know, everybody thinks I'm going to be a real crank about this game, and to a certain extent I will. Um, but also it's going to get, you know, people to take my class on the Vikings this you exactly. know, spring quarter, so yeah. I shouldn't complain too much, right? Um, but people love Vikings, and what's really interesting to me is that lots of different people love Vikings, uh, sometimes in really disturbing ways, right? One of the big things that the field is struggling with is white supremacy. Mm-hmm. Um this idea that like the wolves of Vinland, for instance, is a, is a hate group that has a very real presence across the U S including here in Denver where I live. Um, right. Like, so white supremacists love Vikings. Why do they love Vikings? It sort of makes sense. They're hyper-masculine. Um, they are presented as like white and European. Um, sometimes there, there's a very clear, like anti-Christian element to it. So like neo-pagan, uncorrupted um violence of course is big but on the flip side uh when so in 2017 there was this discovery of a uh a grave in burka in sweden which is a major sort of gravesite uh, settlement uh big port um it was discovered that a grave that we had assumed was male based on the goods in the, the grave a lot of horses and spears and stuff was actually female mm. and this was super exciting uh, and super controversial for a variety of reasons. But what you saw when this news came out was on the one hand, like um, classic red pill um, misogynist groups being like, no way, Vikings are this, right? And on the other hand, feminists and um, you know all of these sort of women on the internet who were like, yes, we knew it, right? Like strong, powerful Viking women. Um, this is everything we've always known about the Vikings, right? So there's this like other group of people who love this idea of the female Valkyrie warrior Viking, Mm -hmm. right? The egalitarian Viking. Um, Neither of these incidentally is real, right? Like the Vikings weren't some, you know, hyper-masculine, you know, master race running around. And they also weren't egalitarian. Uh, They were a medieval people with all the complexities of that. Um, but clearly lots of people love them. The fact that you can have children's movies about Vikings, right? Um, and they can be fun and silly. And then you can also have like hyper violent movies about Vikings, um, means that there's just broad appeal. I think there's a real appeal to Americans because we like explorers and we like, um, adventurers and we like independence, right? That like Mm -hmm. checks a lot of buttons for us. Um, so there's that, the fact that we could theoretically trace Vikings to our own history, whether it's like real history, like Newfoundland, or whether it's fake history, like the Kensington runestone is a fake runestone that was quote unquote discovered, uh, in Minnesota. Right. Um, we really like that connectivity. We like violence that's mediated through adventure. Um, so the fact that the Vikings are simultaneously kind of scary, but kind of cool, they're sexy, they're adventurous, all of those things check a million sort of what we call medievalism buttons. Medievalisms <laughs> are the the use of medieval stuff by modern people. Right. Right. In terms of Ubisoft's approach, it sort of checks all the boxes that you'd expect it to. Um, right. What's really interesting, though, is that they do try, and I was reading an interview by the game uh, director, uh, and also just from my own observations, they are trying to do something interesting, which is that 
they're trying to make you a base builder, mm -hmm. right? Uh, you're building a settlement. There is raiding and there should be, right? Um, but there's also this idea of building alliances, which is a fundamental part of how Vikings work. And the fact that you can play as a woman should be really interesting. They don't do a whole lot with it, mm -hmm. um, which was a little disappointing to me. Um, and the fact that there's about, a, you know, that every other member of your crew is a woman is highly unbased in any reality. But still, like, they're playing with this idea that, like, anyone can be a Viking. The fact that you are playing a simulation of a simulation lets them play around with stuff as well, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so I think that they do some really interesting stuff with it while still sort of like, okay, Vikings look like cool hipsters. You know, they've all got their side fade and their, uh, you know, their tattoos and their whatever. They could know, be like, coming out of a coffee shop in Brooklyn, honestly. Yeah, exactly, right? Like, how would you know the difference, really? Um, that checks a lot of sort of those buttons of what people want from their Vikings, which is not, frankly historical reality mm -hmm. nobody actually wants historical reality in their in their video games uh, even people playing like crusader kings 3 right there's only so far you can go with fidelity before you run into like boringness <laughs> <laughs> um, the bar is higher there than it is here but still right like we have this image of vikings that we want um and it's really interesting to think about the, the choices that they make to check those boxes uh, and the choices that they make that are video game choices, right? Like there's writing all over the place, right? Like you have a mailbox in your, yep. in your room. Vikings are pre-literate. Uh, and even if they weren't, only a very select group of people are writing letters to each other, right? <laughs> um, there's scrolls everywhere. The oh, first room you're in as a little kid, there's just scrolls everywhere. And it's like, okay, but if you want to have a video game where you have info dumps, Right. And where it's not just like someone coming up to you and saying everything, you need little letters you can yep. find. Yeah. Classic video game stuff. Yeah. Exactly. So that's more important than Vikings are pre literate. Yeah. That's a hard message to get across, even in a video game. Um, yeah. I'm wondering, you know, we talked a little bit about this before, but the lack of sources for Vikings, do you think that helps at all when it comes to the popularity? of Vikings in kind of popular culture in general is the fact that there aren't that many sources that you have to, to check against. So it means that you can kind of fill in your own imagination into these, this history. I think that's true to a certain extent. I mean, it's not that we don't have sources. We have a ton of stuff. It's just that it's all very one dimensional in interesting ways. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and some of it is more available than other stuff. Um, but it's also all very, like, if it's the Christian sources, it's very violence-focused. If it's the Norse sagas, it's also kind of violence-focused, but now it's adventure-focused, right? So it's these angles, the angles that were given by our sources shape this image of larger-than-life people, right? Mm -hmm. um, and scary people. I think when it comes to, like, Norse mythology, absolutely, right? Everybody knows Norse mythology. In fact we have basically two primary sources on Norse mythology. Um, the Elder Eddas, which is a poetic corpus, and the Poetic Eddas, written by a guy named Snorri Sturluson. Um, right? That's where almost all of our Norse mythology comes from, is these two sources. Um, and yet everybody knows Norse mythology, and I think that's because 
we're given these really tantalizing stories, but not a whole lot else. Mm -hmm. So you could do whatever you want with it, really. Um, The religious stuff, the Norse mythology, the Norse religion, if we just sort of distinguish between the two that we see in the game is basically fabricated. Mm. Right. Like, um, because there's not a lot to go on. So you can make it do what you want. You can have the themes just sort of that you want to talk about. Right. In really interesting ways. That's why neo-paganism is a thing. Right. Yeah. Um, because we've taken, you know, some, I don't mean to insult anybody, but the idea that there is an unbroken line of authority from the earth, from the pre-written pagan past to now is not historically valid, right? Um, but there's this idea of what it means to be a pagan, whether you're a uh, nice neo-pagan, and they certainly exist, or a scary neo-pagan, and they also exist, <laughs> um, right? There's these themes that you can take and make your own because there's not somebody who can tell you no. Yeah. Right. There's not that sort of corpus of material that you have for like, even like Greek mythology and Greek religion. Yeah. We know a lot about it. Um, We know so much less about Norse mythology. Uh, What we do know is really cool. Right. Um, But that means that there's like these cool little things that you can just run with however you want. Yeah. All right. Well, I think that does it for today's episode. Daniel, thank you so much for joining me on today's episode. It was a real pleasure. Thank you for having me. If you'd like to learn more about History Respawn, please visit our website at historyrespawn.com. And if you enjoy our work, please uh, consider supporting us. Uh, Visit our page on Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash historyrespawn. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.